Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by the writer Alan Parks. Now, Alan worked in the music industry for over 20 years, initially with a music management company before joining London Records, where he commissioned music videos, artwork and photography. And he continued in that role when it became Warner's. He published his first novel, Bloody January, which is set in 1970s Glasgow and introduces Detective Harry McCoy back in 2017 to great acclaim. And he has followed that up with three more novels in the series, February's Son, Bobby March Will Live Forever, and most recently, The April Dead, which came out in March 2021. Alan, welcome to Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much. And I have to say, as someone who I've started on your series, I've, I've gone beyond February and about to start March. What's really good is we kind of know where it's going, so we or guaranteed, I think, 12 novels at least. Well, that's the theory. I suppose it depends if anyone buys it or not, but that's the idea. So hopefully the 12 novels will take us up to about 1979, 1980. And I think that's when things in Glasgow started to change a lot. So I think, you know, it's a whole different ballgame then. So that, that might be a good place to have a think and a reconsider. So we will see if I ever get there or not. As I say, I love the idea of what you're doing in terms of the series, in terms of each title's get the, you know, the... The month, but I, in terms of the actual series, and I've said this to other people. For me, it's particularly crime novels. The key is the character, and the character of Harry McCoy is just brilliant. I think as soon as you start reading Bloody January, you're thinking, "I'm that's it. I'm I'm hooked in this series." He's just well, it's of a different era, I suppose, as well in, in Glasgow and policing. But he's a he's a brilliant character to read. The months thing was actually all a big accident. I wrote the first book, which was called Bloody January, for no real reason other than it was called Bloody January. And then when I signed up to Canongate, they said to me, oh, we're assuming the second one of February in the title. And I was like, no. And then I thought, <laughs> well, that's not that bad an idea. So um, it was it was certainly not intentional, but now you're kind of stuck with it. So you spend half the time trying to think up uh, titles with the, the months in them. So I kind of got away with it with Bobby March, but I don't quite know what I'm going to do with May and June. So God knows. This is the intriguing thing for readers then. We can, we can start speculating what the next one is going to be called. Oh, I know, it's a pain in the butt. So, yeah, you've got to think of something that sort of fits and, um, you know, means something with the book. So that's quite a, a big bit of it, really, which is kind of weird. I mean, when you initially wrote Bloody January, was that just with a view of just you wanted to write a novel? Had you an idea, even if it wasn't the titles that you've come up with for a series? Or were you just hoping that to no, see what the first one would take you? Yeah, I just wrote the book and, um, I, and then I sort of put it in a drawer and I never really thought. And, you know, I think, well, certainly for me, writing a book, to even write a book was a big thing. To think about writing a series was, you know, not even possible. And I was kind of pleased I'd written the book. Having said that, if I'd known at the time that it was going to be a series, I wouldn't have put so many bloody characters in it because you have to find things for them all to do, you know? So you've got to take these people and, and have them have some reason to be in the books again, you know? So I'd probably have had less people and um, I might have started a bit earlier. I might have started about 71 to give myself a bit more time. But, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't intended, so it's, it's just the way, the way it goes, really. And what was it that made you focus on Glasgow in the, in the 70s as your setting for the, the novels? I came back to Glasgow and um, I did some night classes on um, Glasgow's industrial past. 
one week it was like a lecture, and then the next week you'd go and wander around the places with the lecture. And because it was an industrial past, it was kind of the places that, you know, aren't really the touristy bits of Glasgow. It'd be Govan or Springburn or something. And it was kind of, you know, and I got kind of interested in those places again. And, you know, I had a lot, I had a lot of cousins, well, I still do, I had a lot of cousins and aunties and uncles and my nana and my dad all lived around kind of the Milton, Springburn, Ochenairn way, so quite near you, actually. So that area was always kind of interesting. And, you know, I used to go there a lot when I was about, you know, eight to 10 years old. And you kind of, I think you get affected by quite a lot at that age because you're not a teenager yet. You know, you're not obsessed with yourself. So you kind of take a lot in. So it seemed quite a nice combination to go back and look at those places and, and have a think about them at the time and, and you know, and do it like that. Because I think it's good and it'd be interesting to see what people from out with the city think of the books because there's somebody, you know, somebody who, who's from the city, it's kind of like a trip down into the city's past. So there's still enough there that you, you recognise now, but it's nice to then take you, I was just a wee guy back in the 70s, but it's nice yeah. to take you back to that period and the city's history. Yeah, no, it's weird. You know, they say, oh, we're publishing your book in, you know, Slovakia. And I'm like, who in earth in Slovakia is going to be interested in, you know, memories of the Milton in 1970s? But, you know, I suppose I read books about New York or Buenos Aires or stuff. You know, I think there's probably two levels. You know, you can read a book about somewhere you don't really know very well and you maybe don't get all the, the references, but it doesn't really matter, you know. But if you do know the place, maybe, you know, some of them mean a bit more, you know, so... It's kind of weird. It's, it's trying to get that balance between almost like private jokes. You know, you could say, oh, wine alley, and, and you have to sort of explain what that is, you know, where people in Glasgow would already know. So you have to kind of balance it out a bit, really. I think it also goes back to what I was saying, that, you know, no matter where you are in the world reading the book, ultimately, it's if people engage with, with Harry McCoy, then that's what's going to take them along in the journey. And as you say, some people will be more familiar with certain things about the city. But if you've got the characters right and then the story then everything else falls into place I think well I, th- I think so I mean to be honest people read books for characters I think you know I, I, plus you know those very kind of twisty turny whodunity books you know I don't really enjoy that much you know I don't I always find characters more interesting than plots you know and I kind of lose track of plots you know and at the end they go oh and it was George McPherson I'm like which one was George McPherson you know so you kind of I'm not very good at those so I, I don't really like them and I can't write them so I think Really, it's kind of writing a book about people who happen to be policemen or happen to be criminals, but they're they're people, you know, they're like everyone else. They go to birthday parties, they, you know, get drunk, they do all these things, but they also have this slightly more interesting job. But I think if you look at it that way, rather than trying to write a policeman or a thug, you know, it, it kind of works a bit better if you try and make them a bit more rounded, you know, because people are, you know, everyone's complicated, be they a policeman or a, you know, whatever, you know, a greengrocer, everyone's got complicated lives and I think you've got to try and get that in a bit while still trying to keep the kind of pace of it going, really. Yeah, and I think sometimes in the novels, the, there's the blurred lines between who's the police and who's the who's the criminals at times, which, have, again, I think is actually works really well for the reader, I think. Yeah, well, I think, all, you know, all things all things have borders. You know, everything meets. So, you know, criminals and policemen meet. They, not, not every interaction is, I'm arresting you. You know, you see it in TV shows. You know, there's a lot of to and froing and a lot of some, you know, people aren't just criminals and they're evil and everything they do is bad. You know, policemen aren't sort of sainted, you know, I'm rescuing the world. So everything blurs a little bit. And I think that's probably a more realistic view of, of how things work rather than a very goodies and baddies kind of way, you know. So again, it's just about trying to portray real people, I think. And when you've been writing the novels, is there someone in your mind that you think they'd be the perfect person to play Harry McCoy on the bigger small screen? Well, the funny thing is, people ask me, the only person I don't know what they're like, what they look like is Harry McCoy. The rest of them I can tell you exactly what they look like, but I've no idea what he looks like. And I, I don't really know why that is. Maybe it's because I'm kind of writing through him, kind of, I don't know. But 
you know, I could tell you what Stevie Cooper looks like. I could tell you what everyone else looks like. But Harry McCoy, I have no idea. You know, they, and they, it's sort of weird. You know, it's um, I don't really know. And I, yeah, it's, he's slightly anonymous, which I think is probably right. You know, it's but the rest of them, I know who they would be. Uh, I suppose I think as well, because what one reader would picture as what he looks like or who it might be would be different from someone else. That, and again, that's the appeal of, of any novel that you, that you read. Yeah, it's a different things for different people. You know, if you say Stevie Cooper, for example, the kind of criminal guy looks a bit like, well, he fondly imagines he looks a bit like James Dean. You know, he's got a sort of blonde quiff. And, you know, that makes people think, well, I know someone used to look a bit like that. And it kind of reminds him of someone or the way they talk reminds him of someone. But it's different things for different people, you know. And if you write, you know, Harry McCoy had a dusty suit on that. Either, you know, you could think, oh my God, he's like a tramp who slept in the street or he's just got a bit of dust. You know, it's different things for different people. So I think it's up to people to, to figure out what they want them to be like, really. So people probably have an better idea of what Harry McCoy looks like than I do, so. <laughs> I suppose it's a kind of roundabout way of, I, I always think, hopefully if there's some film producer or, or something listening just now, they're thinking, right, that sounds like a great series for me to turn in into uh, a TV Netflix series. Well, it's been optioned, but um, as you find out, everything that in the world gets optioned and very, very few, few things get made. And, you know, I, I'm not holding my breath, but, you know, it would be nice if, if somebody did it sometime. But um, it makes writing look like the fastest thing in the world. TV, that it takes forever for anything to happen. And it's, it's you know, you, TV and film production is kind of based on economics as much as anything else. You know, it's it's not like, oh, he'd be good. It's like, has he got a big enough audience? You know, can we pre-sale it to Germany? All this kind of stuff. So, you know, there's probably a kind of ideal casting and then a, probably a casting that, that might happen. But as I said, it's all pie in the sky, so I'm not worrying about it too much. Well, listen, fing- as, as somebody who's enjoying the series, fingers crossed that, that at some point <laughs> that, that turns out to be the case. Yeah, that'd be nice. In terms of the, the podcast, what I always like to do is take you on your the literary journey of your life, as it were, and oh. take you back to childhood. And the, the first book choice would be a favourite book from childhood. You've given me a couple of choices, but the first one was any of the, the adventure books? I presume that's that the adventure series by Enid Blyton? Enid Blyton. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure now they're not so well thought of, but um, I read them. You know, we used to have, um, I used to live in Eldersley, which had a tiny little library, which was one room, but it was actually a really good library. It was really well stocked, and the children's section was pretty big. And, you know, I read, I used to go twice a week, you know, and get the books out, and you, and you were only allowed three, so you'd have to come back, and until you were a big boy, then you were like four and all this malarkey. And those, you know, Blyton ones, obviously now, if you look at them, they're slightly, some of the politics and some of the stereotyping is somewhat dubious, to say the least. But when I was wee, I didn't know that. You know, they're just incredibly well-written stories. You know, you just start, you go, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And, well, I did anyway. And you kind of, I kind of read my way through the whole thing, the Secret Seven, the Famous Five, the Putin Rights, the Four Investigators and Dog. I mean, there's thousands of them. And I used to get them at the library all the time, and I absolutely loved them. And, it was weird. I'd, mostly all I did when I was wee was read books. So, you know, it was a big thing. And, and the library was a great thing because, you know, I didn't have money or whatever to buy, you know, three or four books a week. So I sort of read my way through the whole library, really, and read everything they had. And, you know, the English Black books were great. But I don't know if kids still read them. I don't know if they're kind of allowed anymore. I mean, I don't know if some of them even might have been updated in terms of the language. I always think, because a few people have obviously chosen Enid Blyton in this category. And, you know, I think she sold... It was over 600 million copies of her books have been sold worldwide. But even with those, for example, those adventure series, apparently yeah. she wrote the first draft of each of them in about less than a week. And you're thinking, <laughs> that's just, I mean, you'll know how, how much you're pouring into yeah. your first draft of the novel, never mind the, the finished draft. If only I could be like, you know, they'd be laughing. They, have, they had a really kind of narrative drive. 
you know, they, it sounds a bit pompous talking about this now, but they, they're very well-constructed books, you know, even though she seems to have just rattled them off. And to be honest, there wasn't that much else about. You know, there was those Wilbur Smith books I never liked. There was, uh, God, there was Alfred Hitchcock's Investigators ones. and But, you know, the Enid Black ones seemed to be the best. When you're, I don't know what age, was a seven, eight, you know, they were just like the best things in the world, you know, so... Because one of the things that always struck me, and again, remember back to when I was when a kid and going to the library, and it was that idea of not only were you discovering books, but it's like if there's a series of books and you, as you said, you just devour them because you like one yeah. and then you suddenly find there's just millions in this series. Yeah. It's, like, it's like a gold mine. Yeah, no, it's nutty. I needed Blank did, as we say, churn them out. So if you liked one, you were laughing because it was about 40 other ones of the same thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, they were really good. And uh, I liked them and I'm trying to think what else I read at the time. Those Asterix comic books, remember those? Like those yeah, uh, yeah. I liked them, they were good. But, you know, all sorts of things. I wasn't that fussy, to be honest. I was just was terrified that I wouldn't have anything to read, you know? So you just got anything, really, and read it. And, you know, whatever my sister had, whatever my parents had, you know, I just started to read it. I was, whatever was, you know, it would be hell on earth not to have something to read. So it ended up with a lot of quite strange things you read when you were quite young. Because it's funny, I don't know, as you mentioned, I don't know if kids would read Enid Blyton, yeah. but I think as well, if you think back to when we were we and reading books, you know, there wasn't the same distractions in terms of, you know, there was only three TV channels, the, you know, there wasn't games consoles and all those sorts yeah. of things. So reading was an integral part of what you did as a kid. It was kind of it. If you, if you weren't out playing, that was it. There wasn't much other options, do you know what I mean? You, you read a book and, and, you know, I get very nostalgic about it and it's not good, but I'm sure if I was a kid now, I'd be like, I'm not reading a bloody book. I've played a PlayStation. Much more fun, you know. But when you didn't have anything else, it was great. But, you know, it's I, 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 a lot of people get kind of a bit arsey and go, well, they should be reading books. They shouldn't be playing video games and all that. And you're like, well, a video game is a narrative. It's the same thing. You know, you're just working out how a story and you go through this and you kill this person, you move it. It's not that different, you know. And, and it's a bit kind of Victorian to claim there's this kind of intrinsic worth in books. You know, children should be sat down and read books. I mean, yeah, if they like them, if they don't, fine, do something else, watch TV, you know, go on the internet. It's all the same thing. You're analysing information in your brain, you know. So I'm not that nostalgic about the days where everyone just had to sit and read a book. I always remember, in a slightly same vein, when my son was wee and bringing my old Subutio set out and setting it up and thinking and getting all nostalgic about it. And then I could see him thinking... Right, well, where's the buttons to, to operate it? Where's the graphics? And I can see, I, there's no comparison. There's no, you know, it's of, of its time. And I thought, well, I'll just keep that and he can just go and play with his PlayStation. Yeah, it's not it's not football manager, whatever you call it. But, you know, it's not the same. So, yeah, I think you can, books are great. And some kids still read, you know, all the time, which is great. But I don't, you know, I don't think that's the only way kids can be interested in the world is, is books, you know, it can probably cause for me or you because there's nothing else around, but now there's a lot of other stuff to think about, so. The other book that you mentioned uh, when you were sending me through the list was the book The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Yeah, which I loved when I read and I, I was probably a wee bit older, I was probably about 10 or something, and it was this weird, I don't know what it was, it was this kind of weird period where S.E. Hinton and there was a weird book called The Cross and the Switchblade, do you ever remember that? I don't know. It was this weird evangelical book about a young minister who went, maybe we got it at school, maybe they gave it out at school or something about a young minister who went to New York and converted gangs to evangelical Christian, you know, completely load of arse, but there you go. But um, at the time I was like, oh my God, S.E. Hinton and this book, everyone in America's got switchblades, they're all going to kill each other. You could even walk down the street and you'd be murdered, you know, and I was like, oh my God, what a place. And then there was uh, another book called Go Ask Alice, which was written by Anonymous. It was actually written by some 40-year-old teacher, but it was about a girl who got addicted to drugs. 
I read that as well. And there was a lot of those kind of sort of teens in peril books at that time. You know, I'm sure there's some vast sociological reason, but I'm sort of lost to me. But those books were, were, were kind of interesting. The Essie Hinton books, you know, they're very, you know, Essie Hinton is a woman. And, you know, I, I assume that's why she called it Essie rather than whatever. I think it's Susan, I can't remember. You know, because the books are quite lyrical and quite sort of romantic in a way and quite soft. You know, they're not sort of, you imagine, conventional boys' books, but they're about gangs and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, they were they were really good books. So I loved that book. And, um, God, she wrote loads of other ones as well, which I probably read. I can't even really remember now. But um, they, they were a big thing. I think just after the kind of Eden Blyton ones, that was the next one. Because she wrote that book. Again, I was just doing a wee bit of research into it. I think yeah. she started writing it when she was 15, wrote most of it at 16, and then she was only 18 when it was published. So she was right in the midst of yeah. each group of the characters, but that's extraordinary as well. Yeah, I'm actually should read it now. It might be more apparent, you know, because it's very easy for kids to relate to. It's, you know, it's, and, you know, it was a sort of world that you didn't really know anything about. And, you know, at that age, anything American's glamorous. So, you know, American teenagers with knives are oh, fantastic, you know, and they've got like, you know, good clothes on and, quiffs you're like wow this is brilliant you know so it's like a win-win you know so and also for some reason the book they never seem to have any parents the parents were always dead or missing or they lived with some uncle that was never in or something so they lived in this kind of mythical teenage world where they didn't you know it wasn't like anyone else you know and, and it was it was really well done and really sort of captivating and you know and then you went from there to I suppose you end up that from there if you're a boy of my age you end up with the Sven Hassel books and all these sort of war books and the sort of skinhead books they used to have at the time and uh, suede head and all those ones, the biker books, and all those, all a bit, bit racy, you know, you're like 13 or 14, you're like, oh my God. So you sort of moved on to them. So, yeah. It's one of the strange phenomenon, I think, in America. It's, and again, I've touched on it in the podcast, previous podcasts, is books are quite often challenged either by parents or religious groups for being unsuitable either to be stocked in public libraries or taught in schools. Or yeah. whatever the subject matter and the outsiders is still a book that's it's on the curriculum of a lot of schools in America, but it's often challenged because of its portrayal of gang violence and uh, underage smoking and drinking and, and these sort yeah. of things. I always think that's just one of the strangest things ever is to challenge those sort of books as if they're somehow unsuitable. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's kind of nuts because that's exactly what people want to read, and the more you say you don't read them, the more they're going to want to read them. You know, as they always say, cool kids smoke because they do. Because cool kids are the first ones to do things, first ones to smoke, first ones to drink. You know, so it's kind of unrealistic to say to kids, you know, you can't be this people smoking at 15. It's like, oh, people smoking at 15 are obviously fantastic and cool. So I definitely want to read about that. <laughs> so it's kind of weird. Yeah, we used to have it in our school. I mean, when I went to school, I haven't spent most of my life in libraries. Our school library, there was a section you weren't allowed until you were in fourth year, I think, which had Brendan Behan, Borstal Boy. And a couple of these other books. And I was like, what a load of balls. You know, so it was, even at the time, you were like, give us a break. You know, it's, you know, I can go home and read my dad's book, which is, you know, a thousand times worse, you know. So there's this kind of spoon feeding, you know, you can't cope with this. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not sure Brendan Bean's book's going to destroy any 14 year olds. So, you know, it's, it's a bit weird, but people like yeah. to, to sort of organise what people are allowed to read. And I think when you're that age, you want to be reading books that are older than if you're a keen or voracious reader you're going to be about two or three years ahead of where you're supposed to be you know because you just rattle through them so you're always going to be wanting to read you know stuff that's supposed to be a bit older than and you should be because you're able to understand that you know you've read enough books to understand how books work so yeah it was always a bit of a battle to get this dreaded i can't remember what it's called it was just a bookcase that you know was for the for the big boys and girls you weren't allowed to have and it was you know such a load of rubbish kind of like forbidden fruit and as you say the more that you're forbidden the more that you want to to read yeah, everything that's there. Yeah, it was, and you know, the school library was, was not a good library, conversely. 
and you know it's just full of crap and then you, you know it's just just to drive you nuts you know and there was a bit elders at the library and sorry all i do is talk about libraries there was elders at the library and i was in pays at the library as well and you used to have to sort of wait there was a slightly more sympathetic librarian to get books out that were older than your your age you know she wasn't really supposed to get adult novels out you know but it's for my dad They'd be like, oh, all right then. you know so you could get older ones out because it's funny i was listening to a podcast recently where the guest was talking about the importance of libraries and they did say it was the first place they'd gone to where they weren't treated as a child of being allowed to choose a certain age your own books and as you say maybe books that are older than maybe the readership's aimed for and you suddenly yeah. felt like slightly grown up you know, again, it's a weird thing. It's a bit, people get very nostalgic about libraries, which is part of this, let's force kids to read books. But when I was younger, there wasn't, as, but there was nothing else. You know, all you had was books. And, and if you're kind of, you know, a slightly introverted child like I was, all you did was read books. And Paisley Library was like the greatest thing ever. You know, it just had absolutely everything. It seemed to have everything you could ever want. And you would go twice a week and go through all the books and discover things and learn things. And it really was kind of a huge part of your life. You know, you just, you learn most of everything. Well, as, as Morrissey said, there's more to reading books, but not much more. It really was at that time the only way to find anything out, you know, whereas now, you know, if you were younger and you thought, oh, I'm interested in the Velvet Underground, you have to tra- traipse the library, try and get a music book that might have, you know, three lines about them. You know, now obviously you can just do it on the internet, which is vastly better. But, you know, some people seem to think, you know, no, no, we should be going back to sort of 50s kind of view of the world. But Those days have gone, I think. Exactly, and probably just as well. If I can take you on then from the childhood sure. to, to your uh, teenage choice and your favourite book from your teenage years, kind of formative years, the one you've chosen is Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Yes, that bundle of laughs. I chose that one. I can remember because that's when I started university when I was 16, 17. That was one of the first books. And it was not a book I would have picked up myself. You know, it was not. You had These were assigned books. You had, you know, a part of the course. You had to read them. I remember reading it in our house in Elders, and it was a sunny day, and I was sitting on the, on the couch, and I thought, oh, God, I better read this thing, and they're going to talk about it tomorrow. And my plan was obviously to skim through and <laughs> see what it was about. But I started, and I literally sat there till I finished it. I was absolutely stunned. I just thought it was the best thing I'd ever read. You know, it was an amazing book about, you know, about Europe, about colonialism, which, you know, not entirely all of which I took on board at the time, but, you know, it's an amazing book about the failure of Europe's dealings with Africa and, you know, sort of moral degradation of people and, what people will and won't do. And, you know, so it's just an amazing book and it's incredibly sparsely written. You know, it's, it's not, it's, I mean, I suppose, it, you know, obviously it was his second language. Maybe that's got something to do with it. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's very plainly written and it's very matter of fact. It's like, you know, he's, it's, he's Marlowe sort of sits, sits you down and says, I'm going to tell you the story about, you know, man's inhumanity to man. And it's an amazing, I just thought it was absolutely amazing. I mean, now, a bit like Ian Black in a strange kind of way, now, you know, in sort of post-colonial studies terms, it's not seen as, as the shining light it once was. You know, there's a very famous Chibi, you know, criticism that it's, you know, just a book about colonialism and a book about the West's inability to deal with Africa on any level other than exploitative. But, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't write it off. I still think it's an incredibly powerful book and it's a book that's got an amazing resonance even today, I think. What was it you were studying at university? Well, at that point, when you go, you sort of do lots of different things. So I think that was English, first year English, I think. So I did that, did philosophy and all sorts of rubbish. So, But yeah, that was a book that, that really, I think partly because I had zero expectation of it. You know, I thought, I don't want to read this. I have to, I have to read it because it's on the course, you know. I was never that fond of older books. I like books that are kind of now, if you know what I mean. So I wasn't keen to read it, but it was a, it was a, huge, a huge game changer, I think. And is that a book, you know, sometimes people then go back later on and revisit it and then you get a different 
perspective on it because obviously your your life experiences change. Have you have you gone back and read it again? Well, it's interesting. You know, it it, it has a lot of resonance in culture, so you you, you come you encounter it quite a lot. There's you know there's the Adam Horsfield book about the Congo that sort of runs through that. There's Apocalypse Now it runs through that. There's you, you oh yeah all that stuff about Roger Casement you know and and um, the Black Diaries and and all that stuff you know he met um, Joseph Conrad in in the Congo at the time so the book kind of resonates more and you know that central idea of how the West's interaction with Africa I mean if you even look at Live Aid you know you couldn't have Live Aid now you know this kind of white saviour um, motif where Here's some film of some black people starving who do nothing in their life but starve for no reason. Nothing to do with the West. They just happen to be like that and we've decided to save them. You know, so I don't think you, would, you wouldn't really get away with that now. So, you know, the, the idea of, of the West interaction with Africa is still a huge thing, you know, and I think that book's still got a lot of things to say about it, really. Because one of the things that, again, just struck me, a couple of the choices you've given me, The Outsiders <laughs> and then Heart of Darkness, which was turned into Apocalypse Now, two Francis Ford Coppola film adaptations yes. of the books. Yeah, Apocalypse Now is fantastic. Um, other one, not so much. Uh, Apocalypse Now is a great film. I guess slightly the same thing. I went to see that called the ABC in Sucky Street. And, um, That's you showing your age. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> and it started, and it's I still, still, I think, one of the very few films with no title sequence. It just starts. And it just starts with that, the beginning of, you know, the, the end, the door song, and, and these palm trees getting napalmed and the hell coming in and out. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is just unbelievable. And you sort of sat there transfixed for whatever it is, but two and a half hours or something, you know, and it's an amazing film. And obviously the core of it is Heart of Darkness. You know, that's that's really what it's based on. He's even called Colonel Kurtz, you know. And so, yeah, it, it, the book has a big afterlife, if you know what I mean. It keeps resonating throughout culture all the time. And, and I think that's the mark of, of an interesting book that it's sort of at any time from when it was written to now, you can use it to help understand or navigate the world. You know, it's, it's still got a lot to, to, to offer. And it's only books that are that powerful that keep getting referenced and keep getting thought about, you know, is kind of interesting, I think. There's yeah. not that many of them. And I think Apocalypse Now as well, just in terms of the film, you know, like it's shown so often in TV now, but it's certainly a film where on the big screen, it's a diff- it's a completely different experience. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's nuts. You were genuinely like, and I think I went in the afternoon. It wasn't that busy, but we did go in the afternoon. Nothing else and it was, it's amazing because it was, it's shot in, I think it was shot in 70. I'm not quite sure. Maybe 35. But it looks amazing. And it's got, you know, at the beginning after it has a, and then suddenly Martin Sheen's head comes in upside down from the top, you know, and you're sort of like, fuck me, what is this? You know, then he goes mental in the hotel room. And it's like, it's, it's just, an amazing film, and I know you know. There's a really, I'm sure you know. There's a really good uh, documentary he's made by his wife, um, Francis Coppola's wife. Uh, which I think it's called Hearts of Darkness. I can't remember now. About shooting, and it's just a horror story. You know, they started off with Harvey Keitel, then they got rid of him, then they got Martin Sheen in, then he had a heart attack three days in. You know, it's just like the worst nightmare you could possibly have. And I think the the idea for documentaries making the film was as much a kind of Heart of Darkness story as, as the actual film itself. You know, so. If you've never seen it, you should uh, try and see it at the cinema. It's definitely worth it. And just in a slight juxtaposition in terms of my memories of the ABC in Suck Hill Street, <laughs> the, film, the film that I remember going to see was Watership Down. Slightly different. Oh, oh, oh. Probably equally horrific, to be honest. Well, you're uh, listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest this week is Alan Parks. And Alan, we're on to 
the third book choice in the podcast, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book yeah. that you've chosen is The Stand by Stephen King. Yes, I love The Stand. I think it's such a great book. It's, I can't tell you how many times I've read it. There's even an even longer version, which you can get, which is called The Stand Uncut or something, which is like a thousand page. I'm like, fantastic. Let's hope it's an even longer one. It's a book about, as sure most people know, it's a book about a kind of post-pandemic uh, America, slightly weirdly. Except that, that this pandemic is, is hugely more fatal. I think it's like 99% of everyone's dead. And the few that are left are either called to Las Vegas to join a man called Randall Flagg, who's a kind of devil person. And the more nicer people are called to Boulder, Colorado, eventually, to gather together under the auspices of a woman called Mother Abigail. And, and it sort of then becomes a kind of battle of good and evil across America in a sort of decimated landscape. But, you know, it's full of such fantastic set pieces, you know, that Stephen King is really good at. You know, they have an escape from New York in a darkened tunnel through all the crashed cars. And, you know, there's a guy in prison who's slowly starving to death. And, you know, the Randall Flagg character appears and sort of says he'll save him if, you know, he gives all his soul to him and everything. You know, and it's, I mean, it's a big book. It's an awful lot of characters. It's But it's really well balanced and it's... Again, it's one of those ones when you start, you go, oh, God, what's going to happen next? You know, and it's it's just, I think it's his best book by quite a jump. And um, it's just really well done. You know, it's, it's you have to just take your hat off and go, that is that is an amazing, because the scope of it is huge. You know, it's it's great. The start of the opening is great as well. You know, it starts with people sitting in a garage and a bunch of, sort of good old boys talking rubbish, you know, and out the corner of the eye, one of them sees a car sort of weaving down the street like this towards them. And he's like, that's going to hit us. You know, and, and sure enough, it does. And when they open the car door, the guy falls out and he's ill and he's escaped from the lab where they made the microbe or whatever it is that affects everyone. And he's taken it out into the world and that's the beginning, really. And, you know, that really small scale, you know, a, a book like that, starting with such a small little thing, you know, it's a bunch of guys for a, pa- a couple of pages, a bunch of guys arguing about rubbish in a, in a, in a garage, you know. And then this little car, it's just incredibly clever how it starts and how it drags you in, you know, so... I, I think it's, it's great, actually, yeah. Because what I loved about it was, especially now, I think people reading it, because, you know, as you say, it's a kind of post-apocalyptic pandemic, but it was the way he starts off, and it's almost, I read it a few years ago, but explaining how this spreads. And as you're reading it, you can see, I can see absolutely how that would happen. And my daughter's reading it just now, and I, when I gave it to her, I said, first thing is, don't, I think sometimes people can get intimidated by the sheer size of it. It's so easy to read, because as yeah. you see, he has all these characters, but he he's total control of them. They're totally gripped with the story. And as that kind of pandemic spreads and then the aftermath of that, you're already in that and you can see how easily it could happen. And obviously, to a lesser extent, we're seeing that now. But I think once you're in that story, that's you, you're completely lost in it. Yeah, no, it's great. And they, they recently made a really terrible TV series of it, which was um, not good. Because I think they've tried a couple of times they and they've both been equally poor. Yeah, it's, it's sort of weird. You know, it's funny because that last one, you sort of think in these post-Game of Thrones days, they'd be like, oh, great, you know, a huge, big, epic novel, we'll do this. And it looked like they'd done it for about five pence. You know, there was no escape from New York in the tunnel, because obviously that would have cost too much. You know, Randall Flagg sort of appeared on what looked like a sort of mid-80s video set with a, with a wolf beside it. You know, it was just really pony. It was not good. And there were some good people in it, you know, some good actors, in it, but it just wasn't, wasn't good at all, really, which is a bit of a shame. But having said that, I don't know if I'd ever think any of them were good, you know, maybe I'd just be too picky, but I think it's still to be made, the, the great TDCs of the stand. Yeah, it may be one of those books that is impossible to do, because I think it'd be a difficult book to do it justice because of, as you, as you mentioned, the scale and the scope of it. 
to actually, unless you had an unlimited budget, to just yeah. write, right, we're really going for this. But I think, you know, you mentioned Game of Thrones. If yeah. you do put the budget behind something, yeah. you get the rewards. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, whether you sort of uh, just decide to go for it, really. You know, there's kind of half-baked, let's make it, but spend five pence. Didn't work so well. You know, I think you'd have to go, well, it's a huge big book. It'll last for three seasons or whatever. You know, we'll pay the money. But obviously that hasn't quite happened. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a very good book. And I would certainly say for anybody who, who sees it, and as I say, sometimes big doorstopper novels can be, yeah. it is anything but that, I think. As you said, it starts off, it's got you right away, yeah. and then before you know it... Yeah, you're in. Yeah, and then you start thinking, God, I hope it doesn't run out. You know, it's used to want more, but to be more to be read, so you can get the super big long version, which goes on and on and on. But, I mean, as a writer, does that... You know how much you have to pour into each novel, and to keep control of your characters and know what they're doing sometimes together sometimes separately yeah. and t- tie all these strands together and then he's maybe doing it on a novel that's about three times as long as the average novel i know i mean how I'm, difficult I'm, that is i'm complaining about having to drag four or five characters through the 70s and he's dragging about 50 <laughs> characters through the whole of the end of the world you know i think he's doing a bit of a better job than me yeah it must be very difficult it's um because it's such a a big screen if you know what i mean to keep because, you know, you go, oh, we haven't heard from them for me. Well, we have to go back here. But plot-wise, they haven't done anything. So we have to get them to do so. You know, so it's really compl- just technically very complicated. And um, he does it incredibly well. And like all Stephen King books, it's, it's really about characters. You know, that's why they work. They, the characters are just really well written. And, you know, it came out roundabout when they were having all that sort of dirty realism thing about American literature and Raymond Carver and, you know, people like that using brand names and, you know, talking about trailer parks and all this. And, you know, that the stand is kind of one of the first, well, not the first, but the first, well, the stand does that as well, you know, in a kind of weird kind of way. So it's an odd one. I mean, in terms of your own uh, writing process, are you someone who plans quite a lot before you tackle each new novel or do you start it with a kind of rough idea of what you want to do and see where it takes you? I'm not a big planner outer. I have a few sort of incidents that have to happen or a few places that I want to write about, and then you kind of have to find a way to join them together. So I sort of start off with the kind of the first third sort of sort of in my head. And then once you write it, it starts to change, you know, and you just get it. For me, I just kind of roll with the punches. Suddenly someone becomes more interesting. You think, oh, well, let's put them in a bit more. Or the idea that you had that this was going to be really brilliant. Oh, God, this is terrible. You know, so yeah, you kind of just kind of have to roll with it a bit. But you get a sort of basic idea of what, I mean, the last one, the April Dead one, I knew I wanted to write about the Holy Loch. I knew I wanted to write about someone who had nothing to lose and was in control of a situation. And but it changes, you know. There's a, in that book there was a someone gets killed in uh, Shettleston, and you kind of pick arbitrary places. You know, you go, oh, okay, number thing we should. So I went to look at the close, you know, and thought, and there was a pub across the street called the Pal- Palisum, strange name, in Edrum Street, um, which is a huge big pub. And I thought, well, you know, maybe they'd have gone there to see if anyone had seen anything. So you do a wee bit of research and you find out it used to be called the Edrum in the 70s. And it was one of the few bars in Glasgow that was friendly to travelling people that was accommodating to show people or travellers or whatever. So I thought, well, that's quite interesting. So we'll put a bit of that in. So that became a bigger thread in the book. So sometimes little things you don't really think about, you know, just pop, pop themselves above the parapet and you, and you sort of put them in a bit, really. So... Plan some of it out. I more plan where things happen because I like to centre yourself kind of geographically, if you know what I mean. And there's always bits of Glasgow I want to write about. And sometimes you have to shoehorn them in for no apparent reason. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff happening in Paddy's Market. It doesn't really need to because I like writing about Paddy's Market. So, But I think some, you know, that idea when you were saying about the, what you find out about the pub in your research, yeah. that's something that can be quite exciting because as you say, that's not yeah. what you planned and, and suddenly you stumble upon something that becomes part of the story. 
yeah, I have no intention of writing about show people at all, you know, and it just became part of the story. So it's really good sometimes when that happens. And there's another, in the Bobby March book, I think, they go to Peterhead, which is, you know, the prison in Aberdeen. And I went to Peterhead to have a look, because now a museum, you know, it's run by ex-prison officers. And if you know Peterhead, it's in Aberdeen, which is freezing enough in itself, but it's right on a cliff above the, I mean, it's fucking free, you know, the wind and the sea. So I was, you know, confidently about to write, oh, you know, Stevie Cooper in prison was freezing to death, you know, blah, 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 it's so cool. And I, and I was leaving, I spoke to the lady, and and, uh, and she said, oh, did you enjoy your visit? I said, yeah, yeah, and we're sort of turning away. I said, God, it's been freezing in here. And she went, oh, God, no, she said, it was the opposite. She said, there was three men in each cell, and there was a dirty big heating pipe going through each cell. She said, it was like a sauna. I was like, ah. <laughs> so when someone tells you that, that's kind of the opposite of what you think. It's quite good, because then you can put in the book, McCoy says, oh, you must have been freezing all the time. And Cooper's like, no, I was bloody boy. You know, it's quite good to, to have that little... And that little thing she said was kind of worth the trip to Aberdeen to to have a look at, you know, the geography of the prison's fine, you can write that out. But if she hadn't said that, you know, it, it's just quite a good thing. So often that's why I like to go to places or have a look or maybe speak to someone that's been there because sometimes they, they give something away that's, not get away, but sometimes they tell you something that's kind of off the normal. You know, it's not a big thing, but it's a little thing that helps you to write a bit more of an authentic bit. I think sometimes those wee details are just, that's what makes the difference between a book that you're reading that's okay, but a book that stays with you. Because it's just there's just that sense that you kind of, you know what you're talking about, so we trust you as the as the writer, as it will. Yeah, well, it's funny, because I went up to that, my cousin was going up to Aberdeen anyway, so he gave me a lift, and he, he came along. And the book, I said, is that all you wrote about bloody Peter Head? That one thing? I've just trained Peter Head. I was like, sorry. But it was, you know, but that little thing is, is kind of what you want. You know, that's, because you can look at, Google Maps and see where Peterhead is and where it sits and go, oh, it's on a cliff, you know, but it's a little bit sort of kind of interesting when people tell you these slightly weird things, you know, and it's, uh, can be weird though, there's a guy called Alex Morrison who runs a boxing gym who I went to talk to because of some boxing in the Bobby March book. He was great, he was amazing, but I think he thought I was going to ask him more about boxing, you know, about the actual technical things of boxing. And I was sort of saying to him, oh yeah, so when you, there was boxing in Govan Town Hall, what pub would you go to next door for a drink? <laughs> and he was kind of like, Ask me that. <laughs> but, you know, he very graciously told me. But, you know, you, it's the kind of slightly peripheral things that are interesting. Because I can't really write about boxing. I don't really write about boxing. But then neither does Harry McCoy. So when he goes to see the boxing, he thinks, fuck, let's go for a drink. So it's like, where would I go next to Govan Town Hall? You know, so just little things that are good to talk to people about. And I wonder if when you're doing research for your next book, if it's a, a bit further afield, whether your cousin will say, no, you're on your own this time. I know, not well, you. He, he used to quite like it, but I think he's got a bit sick of it now. I've forced him to wander around Glasgow about 500 times because he used to live in uh, in the Milton. And uh, I'm always texting him and asking him, what street was that? The thing name was it? Where did the bus go and all that? But I used to do it with my mum. Used to have, uh, well, my mum has passed away, but her and her brothers and sisters used to meet up on a Monday when they were all sort of in their 70s. and. I was like, great, I'm going to ask them all this information about, you know. So I'd get this list of questions a Monday afternoon, you know, I'd turn up. I'd be like, hello, so how much was a pint on, you know, about 1970s? Oh, was it a pint? Was it a... And it was just like they couldn't remember. You know, one would say, oh, 40 pence. I was like, oh, no, 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 it was 60 pence. And you're like, this is actually not helping me at all. You know, and or you'd say to them, you know, anything would just be an argument. You know, one would say, oh, that pub wasn't there. Was the other. That was it. It was a cafe in Saracen Street. I said, what side of the street was it on? And this went on for about three quarters of an hour, this <laughs> argument about, you know, where bloody cafe was. So you kind of realise that human frailty, you know, they're not quite as accurate as you think. But it's, it's quite good, that stuff. You get stuff out of it. But, you know, people remember things differently, so. Unreliable witnesses. They are, you know, and it's, you kind of think, oh, God, I'm laughing. I'll know everything now. But 
Well, in terms of the podcast, if I can take you from the stand, a book you'd recommend to anyone, to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again, and the book that you've chosen is Waverley by Walter Scott. Yeah, I'm sorry, Walter Scott, but, uh, but you know, we, I did some Scottish literature at university. A lot, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but a lot of the kind of Victorian, it's just the most turgid, unreadable rubbish you've ever had in your life. You know, Waverley, you, you, I literally had to force myself to read. It was just, oh. But, you know, it was, it was a shame. But, you know, then you got into slightly later books which were much more interesting. But so Walter Scott, I could never quite get my head around. You know, it was just... And apparently he wrote everything episodically. You know, it was like Dickens. It was published every month or something, another chapter. So, of course, it makes no narrative sense because he couldn't remember what he'd done the week before. You know, so it was just all over the place. And it was just so boring. And it seemed so long. And, you know, you'd sit in these lectures about Waverly. But I literally cannot stay awake. This is a nightmare. So... That's one of the ones I certainly will never, ever read again. But again, that was because I had to. I'm pretty hardcore. If I start to read a book and I get bored, I just stop. I don't have any inclination to finish anything because I've st- I know a lot of people, when they finish, oh, I've got to finish it. Are you nuts? You know, just throw away and go over something else, you know? So I'm pretty brutal if I start. Oh, isn't that brutal sometimes? I just go, well, that was quite interesting, but I don't really want to read the rest of it, you know? So I, I don't force myself to finish anything anymore. Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm the exact same as you, because I think there's, there's so many books and that you can, can always pick up another one. Yeah, and I, it's not often, because often it's not because a book bad, it's just that, well, I've sort of read half it, I kind of get the, the gist, you know, it's quite interesting, and now let's look for another one, you know, which I'm sure horrifies the people who are writing it, but, you know, it's uh, I don't have any great compunction to finish finish things very much. Somebody did once say on the podcast, and this question, uh, the only instruction they were given is to choose an author who was dead, so that way you're not going to offend them. So you've, you've, yeah, exactly. you've checked that box. So I know. Well, you know, it's weird because you get these people entirely sensible, you know, people who are obsessed with the fantasticness of Sir Walter Scott, you know, and he's a big character in Scottish Scottish literary history, but it's just like, oh, God, not for me, you know. But I'm sure some people love it, but it was just one I couldn't quite get my head around. Because uh, apparently, uh, again, when I was just doing a bit of research, he published it anonymously at first, and I think it was a few years later before he admitted, he actually admitted. He admitted what he'd done. Uh, he said, I think he should stay anonymous, that would be better, actually. But yeah, I think they were published in a magazine, you know, like Dickens were published in a little pamphlets, I think. But I can't remember very much because I tended to tune out as soon as anyone started talking about it. But Because um, that's, I suppose, wait. is that the difficulty sometimes when you're studying books as opposed to reading them off your own yeah. back? It's seen as a, can be a chore, especially if it's something that you don't immediately engage with. Yeah, it's just a nightmare, you know. And it's really hard because you have to force yourself to do it, and you have to force yourself to think about it, and you have to force yourself to, and it's just give us a bit. Which is a shame because most of the other books, of course, were really good. You know, you did John Galt and James Hogg, and you know all these really, really good books. You know, but not not Waverley. In terms of the fifth question in the podcast, and that yep. is either the last book you've read or the book you're reading now, and the one that you've chosen is a book called uh, The Survivor: An Anatomy of Life in the Death Camps by Terence Duprez. I don't know, I think it's probably Dupre, I've no idea. It's a, it's an odd book. It took me a while to get a hold of a copy, actually. It's quite hard to get a hold of, but I have one now. It's really a book about about how people survived in death camps. It's about, it's not really about the mechanics of what happened, or, you know, it's about how some people managed to live through it and some people didn't, and about the psychological kind of terror of it all. And, and, and it's, you know, it's a pretty hardcore book, to be honest. But um, it's very compassionate and very interesting and it's it's a slightly odd view of of um i suppose holocaust history it's not it's not really concerned with why it happened or you know how it you know the mechanics of how this it's about what happened to people once they were there and why some people died in a day you know they just gave up 
and some people managed to live for years. You know, it's about that sort of thing. So it's it's a it's a very difficult book, but it's it's very interesting. You know, it's about how most people what he 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 seems to discover is that it was really a question of defiance. If you can get up in the morning and wash your hands, even though you're covered in human shit and you know you're living in hell. If you can wash your hands and try and eat something, if you can, if you're allowed, and try and move forward, you can survive. You know, he said it's the people that gave up and stopped washing their hands and stopped trying to, you know, they just couldn't anymore, you know, and it's it's, it's a very powerful book. But it's, it's, I mean, the guy, you know, sadly killed himself not long after he wrote it. It's a, it's a pretty hardcore book. Were you aware, you know, you said it was quite hard to get a copy of the book. Was it a book that you were aware of and you wanted to read? Is that how, how yeah, did you come across I mean, it? I mean, Holocaust, I mean, I'm now starting talking but stuff I don't really know enough about. But Holocaust studies has tended to shift from camps to Belarus, to Ukraine, where people were killed. Mainly they were shot by villagers. And, you know, it's not that sort of grand mechanism that people think it was. So this book was written when camps were still the epicentre of study. You know, that's what people looked at all the time. And that's kind of faded away the past few years. So I'd seen it referenced in a few other things. And I don't think it's in, I don't think it's in print anymore. I know I had to get this old copy. It's a weirdly personal book about something that he wasn't there you know it's it's kind of odd it's not really history it's kind of a more of a kind of meditation on, on how people survive these things really so yeah it's not the most fun thing to read but it's it's very interesting and very powerful so yeah it took a wee while to track it down really i mean in terms of your own your reading choices to read more fiction or non-fiction do you read a, a lot of crime fiction for example or how do you make I, your choices i used to read a lot of crime fiction <laughs> I don't so much now, partly because I'm a bit sick of after I've written it all day to sit down and go, oh, you know, partly because I'm a bit scared I'm going to steal someone's idea because, you know, I'm sort of thinking, if I think of an idea, I go, God, did I just read that last bit? You know, so I, I, apart from the ones that you just want to read because, you know, you want to because they come out and you go, oh, God, I've got to read that. I don't read so much now. I read, but I read quite a lot of fiction or, or, or both of them, really. Um, I mean, The Survivor, which now I'm also reading that book about the biography of Francis Bacon. Um, I'm trying to see what's over there on the pile that I'm supposed to be reading. There's a bunch of different stuff. Then you have to read some things for research, really. You know, you get stuff like that. And, you know, I, it's, I read a lot and I've I, never... You know, it's weird. You get some people who they come to crime festivals and stuff and they only read crime fiction. That's all they read. And I'm like, God, you know, I like crime fiction much as the next person, but I think if that's all I read, I'd go bonkers. You know, it's, I like a different spread of things. So, yeah, it's a lot of different things, really, come through. And, of course, this is terrible because, you know, this lockdown, there's nothing to do but sit and go, oh, I think I'll order a book on Amazon. You know, and every day you get one bloody book. And uh, so there's a lot of them lying about still to be read. And as I said, there's some you've got to read for research. So for the next book, I'm trying to look over there without giving away what I'm actually reading for the next book. The Shankill Butchers, I don't know another bundle of laughs. A book about the ice cream wars, a book about the Red Road. So there's a bunch of different things, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I don't stick to one certain thing. Because we, just before we started recording, we were talking about, obviously, the current circumstances with you bringing a book out in bookshops, not yet open, book festivals not yeah. yet running again, which is a challenge for any, you mentioned also the fact as a reader you want to pop into bookshops, but as a writer, that's what you really want, is to be given this book that you've poured your heart and soul into, a bit of a launch, and getting to meet the people who are, who are fans of your work. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, this was normally when you put a book out, it's kind of a bit of a, ooh, and, you know, you do something, but this was a, and you're like, oh, you know. So maybe when the bookshop's open again, you see it in the shop. It's always quite nice to see it in the shop. But um, yeah, it's been kind of odd, really. But apparently book sales are up. So, you know, everyone obviously is sitting in the house going, God, I must order a book to have something to do, you know. So it seems to have done quite well. But I've, I've been weird. Some part of this lockdown, sometimes I've been reading a lot. Sometimes I just don't have the concentration. It kind of comes and goes. It's, it's a bit odd. But um, yeah, there's always good books to be read. 
And as a reader, how do you find it, that experience when you go into a bookshop and you see your books taking centre stage alongside all these other books? Well, A, I'm always a bit embarrassed. And B, I always think, when the first one came out, it was in uh, WH Smith in Central Station. And I didn't know it was out. And I was in WH Smith in Central Station looking for something to read. And I saw my bit. I was like, oh my God, there's my bit. So I sort of picked it up and I was like, mm. then I put it back down and I thought, I'll lurk about for a bit and see if anyone buys. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat, wandered about the shop for about half an hour because no one went anywhere near it, you know. But um, it's kind of funny, yeah. You, you, um, it's sort of weird seeing your, your book in the shop. It's yeah, it's odd. And uh, sometimes the worst thing is sometimes you know you have to buy it because you said someone will give you one or whatever. You know, and you forget. And you think this is just the most embarrassing thing about buying your own book, you know. And I kind of know some of the people that work in Waterstones, and I'm like. Kind of you know, so um, but it's it's nice to see, and it's nice when you do these book things. People come up and talk to you, you know, about the book, and that's always good. But yeah, you kind of miss those. I mean, I've done some of them online, but it's not quite the same. You know, it's it's a slightly different thing. But it'll be nice, hopefully, if it all gets back to together again. And now that the the fourth book's out, you're already hard at work, either working on the book or doing, as you said, research for the May yeah, book in the I've Harry McCoy series. Yeah, I've started doing the the one for whatever May will be. Which at this stage is still just trying to have a think, really, and stick things together and go, what about there, you know? And as I said, I often do it by places, and I kind of wanted to read about the Red Road, read to write about the Red Road flat. So that's going to go in there. And Royston is going to go in there, uh, Royston Hill. So, you know, there's some places I know that I already want to, to get in there, and, and there's an idea about, about something. So it's early days, you know, you're just kind of jotting things down and going, uh, well, maybe that'll work, maybe that'll work, maybe that'll work, you know? And, then you got, yeah, so it's really, as I said, it's early days. We're just trying to work it out, really. And then I'll probably start actually writing stuff in a couple of weeks, I think. It gives people time to catch up and, and read all the books in the series then? Well, hopefully, yeah, but I'm already behind, so I'm always behind, so it's not going to make any difference. You know, so, But uh, yeah, so yeah, no, it's, it's been weird. But I've, I've written this April Dead one. It's the only one I've written without the Mitchell Library. It's been shut for a year. So it's bound to be full of mistakes because <laughs> I haven't been able to check as much of it as I want. So I've no doubt there's something telling me, oh, that probably shot in 1924 or blah, 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 you know. So it's it's going to be a bit weird. So, yeah. Well, sadly, Alan, we've come to the, the end of the podcast. I have to tell people, if you haven't already started reading the Harry McCoy series, you should get onto it because it's a, it's a great series. And I think once you start reading Bloody January, you'll be absolutely hooked. Um, but I've, I've really enjoyed uh, the book chat today, Alan. It's been, it's been really great. Yeah. It's a good idea to go through all these things. Maybe you should think about these things a bit, which I haven't for a long time. I haven't thought about Enoch Light for quite some time. So there you go. <laughs> and probably after today, you never will again. Probably never will. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.